good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The U.S. Constitution was signed in Philadelphia on September 17, 1787, and September 17th of every year is designated as Constitution Day to commemorate the signing of the U.S. Constitution. Since the enactment of a federal law in 2004, Educational institutions that receive federal funds are required to hold an educational program about the U.S. Constitution for its students on Constitution Day every year. As is our practice, North Carolina Central University has a Constitution Day program planned in which scholars will discuss, among other topics, voting rights, affirmative action, and Roe v. Wade. That program is scheduled for Friday, September 16th, as September 17th falls on a Saturday this year. There is much to say about our US Constitution. And while it's the oldest written constitution of any major government in the world, it was far, far from perfect when ratified. And though it's been amended several times, it continues to be a document that fails to ensure equality. On tonight's show, in recognition of the upcoming Constitution Day, we're gonna talk about the US Constitution and how we as a society can further the aspirational ideas of this imperfect document. Joining us for this discussion is Don Corbett, one of our frequent guests and professor of law at NCCU School of Law. Professor Corbett teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and race in the law. Professor Corbett, as always, thank you for joining us as we engage in a discussion um, about the Constitution this evening. It is my pleasure and privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. So you have taught constitutional law for several years, and you have experienced um, exposing students who may not have thought about the Constitution or studied the Constitution since they were in high school in a civics class. What surprises you about your students and the general public as well about their understanding of the Constitution or lack thereof? Yes, and, and thank you again for having me. I think it's really to begin with the latter. It's the lack thereof. One of the things that I have taken to doing now on the first day of class is giving them 20 questions that are related to the Constitution from the U.S. citizenship exam. So as you know, to apply, or some people may not know, but <clears throat> I'll explain try briefly that when you're trying to become a, a legal citizen in the United States, you have to pass a citizenship test, which is basically a civics exam over the history of the United States. So what I do is I give them 20 questions from that exam, uh, all of which are related in some way, shape, or form to the Constitution, just to see how they do. And if I feel like really mean-spirited, I will tell them this is the final exam, and that we're not going to have class the rest of the semester, so your grade is going to depend on this. And then 
that threw some people into shock. And I said, maybe I should stop doing that. But, but you know, what's interesting to me is we have people, obviously, who are very academically gifted and have been uh, recipients of good grades really throughout their academic lives. And many of them just don't know some of the basics about how the Constitution works. Uh, they don't know that, like, you can't sue a private entity by and large for a constitutional violation. It has to be a government entity. Uh, they don't know <clears throat> that it was actually the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery uh, in the United States as opposed to the Emancipation Proclamation. So, so, you know, once we walk through the answers together, and I've been doing this for a while and I've never had anybody get them all right, uh, I just tell them it wasn't to embarrass you. It's just that, you know, we hear a lot of talk nowadays about who belongs in the country and who doesn't and who's a real American and who's not. And here we are, all citizens of the United States, born here for the most part, and we don't even know how our own system works in lots of ways. So, so that I try to use is just a barometer to let them know everybody's on the same footing. Uh, we're going to take this journey together, and hopefully at the end of this class, you'll be able to answer all these questions successfully, as opposed to how you did today. So it's really what people think it allows you to do versus what it actually does, and the chasm between those two points. That's been the most surprising thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I always thought um, when I was teaching constitutional law, two observations. One, I, I was um, surprised at how um, what I learned when I was studying the Constitution as a professor to teach students. So there were some details and specifics about the document um, that I wasn't even aware of. and. Also, if we think about students being exposed to it in middle school and high school, there's a lot that you just can't put into context. So in high school, how many, you know, you can't vote until you're 18. And so do you really understand, you know, the role that the Constitution play, pay, plays when it comes to voting rights? Do you really, are you really able to appreciate the document? And it seems that we should provide um, continuing education for the citizenry at large as it relates to our constitution. Agreed 110% because as I said, these are students that are really academically gifted for the most part. And you know, some people beyond the building just haven't had the same exposure. So it makes perfect sense that they may not understand how it works. And, and to your point, I learn new things about it every single year when I teach the class. Well, you know, let's, let's take it a, a step higher. Uh, what, what has been your experience with respect to lawyers understanding uh, the Constitution and, uh, and how it works? Uh, you, you would you know, give a little, I guess, slack to students, but uh, what about those who are out uh, advising people as to the law and their level of understanding of the Constitution? Yeah, I, I don't want to defame people publicly. <laughs> so, but and, and for people who don't know, usually you know, you finish law school, you go out and you practice law, and you have a specialty area that you'll focus on, and so you're not necessarily knowledgeable about everything but you are knowledgeable about the thing that you practice. So constitutional law is not necessarily an area that a lot of people will engage in day-to-day -day practice in for lots of reasons. And I have been, to your point, surprised at being at some networking functions or other meetings with other lawyers. And I'll hear someone say, well, 
I really can't wait for Trump to get in office because he said he's going to throw out Obamacare on the first day. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, but that's 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 a law that was passed by Congress and Congress has to repeal it and he can't throw it out on the first day. You know what I mean? So so those are the kinds of things that that you hear from time to time from practicing lawyers, to your point. So so it, it is nuanced. Uh, it is fluid, as we've seen over the last year or two. Uh, so it's not as concrete in some ways as other areas of the law. And for people who don't keep up with those things consistently, you can have a, very quickly have the wrong understanding of what the Constitution does and does not allow for people who work in government to do. Yeah. And I guess one of the problems also is that you have had a president who didn't understand uh, how the Constitution uh, would uh, would work. Uh, but, you know, you know I, I have traveled to uh, South Africa often, and uh, Dean Dawson has uh, joined me on a couple of those uh, occasions. And uh, during those trips, I've had the opportunity to talk with a whole range of, uh, of people, uh, South Africans who are there. And uh, almost without exception, uh, when you started to talk about the Constitution, many people responded positively to it and knew what it was that uh, that they were entitled to as citizens and the kinds of uh, protection uh, that uh, they felt that uh, the government needed to provide uh, to them. Uh, but the level of, uh, of understanding of the Constitution and appreciation of uh, the Constitution seemed to be significantly higher uh, in South Africa than I found it to be uh, that I found it to be here in uh, in the U.S. Uh, can you kind of comment on why that sure. might be the case, or your experience or sure. reaction to that? Sure. I mean, as Professor Dawson stated earlier, it is a very, very imperfect document, um, especially when it comes to matters of race and race relations. The Constitution never mentions the word slavery in it, but there are several. Uh, clauses in it that certainly give a wink and a nod in a positive way to slavery. Now, this is obviously because they're trying to get the southern states uh, to coalesce around this document and create a united entity. But again, far from an imperfect document. Now, just because it's imperfect doesn't mean it's not incredible in lots of ways. The foresight that the authors and the founders had in what this particular system of government would look like and the fact that that has held true for the last 300 years, essentially, uh, and, and operated in, I think, most contexts pretty successfully in terms of giving uh, our day to day a governmental framework. Well, you know, we've we've been we've been at it for so long. It's we take it for granted. Right. And there are many, many other countries that have not had that kind of governmental stability and are therefore, uh, I won't say envious, but they, they look at our system of government, look at our constitution with the level of admiration that I think sometimes escapes us. Now, what we've seen over the last two to four years is that just because it's remarkable doesn't mean it's not fragile. And, and its operation depends in large part, uh, and its functionality depends in large part on people having the good faith to abide by the limitations that it sets. 
And as you, I think, correctly noted a few minutes ago, once you get somebody in office or a group of people in office say, you know what, I want to do that, you know, then you can you can create and, and sow seeds of chaos that, you know, we haven't seen in this country before. So I think that's for me is a big reason for it. And, and I think that's why when you know we go abroad, we hear those kind of reflections from other citizens. So Don, as you noted, the original constitution doesn't include the word slavery at all, but there are specific provisions within the document that certainly enshrined slavery and supported slavery as it existed in society at that time. Um, and we'll, we'll flesh that out in a minute, but I, I wanted to kind of speak to your point about our citizens not being familiar with the constitution. And if you study the Constitution, you can't escape the fact that it was supportive of slavery. And this goes to the current circumstance in which we find ourselves, where there are those who don't want the accurate teaching of our history because it may offend. Can you talk about the importance of understanding the reality of our Constitution and, and accepting that it you know, was a very flawed document. Um, it wasn't perfect, as you noted, there were some aspects of it that continued to survive today for good reason, but that it's okay. And in fact, it's necessary for us to really understand and, and study our document and to recognize the imperfections of it. Sure. So in, in keeping it, and we could go lots of different ways about this, but in keeping it uh, narrowly answered or attempted to be narrowly answered with regard to the concept of slavery and race relations. So at the time, you have 13 original colonies, uh, some of whom are slaveholding colonies and some of whom are not. And any language in the Constitution that would have forbid, forbidden or outlawed slavery would absolutely have been rejected by the Southern states because slavery was such a huge part of their economic engine. And they were not going to enter into a new agreement uh, with any states if they were going to have to buy, if, that, if they're going to be forced to bypass that practice. So what you saw then <clears throat> was a series of compromises where, as stated, the word slavery was not endorsed, but uh, there were, like I said, a wink, winks and nods to it throughout the document. So for instance, in Article 1, there is language that says that the new federal government, when seated, um, will not pass a law that uh, bans the importation of humans for the next 20 years. So that basically provided a 20 year grace period to the South uh, to allow the importation of more slaves uh, before the federal, newly seated federal government could even consider passing a law that might abolish slavery or impact slavery for the negative. There was also, I believe in article four, what's called the fugitive slave clause, which meant that any slave that escaped from, from his or her master if discovered even in a free state, there was a federal obligation to return that slave to the owner. Uh, and then the clause that probably most people are most familiar with is the three-fifths clause. Now, this really didn't have so much to do with the issue. Well, I don't want to say that because that's, that's not 100% accurate. But essentially, what uh, that discussion was about and where the compromise came from was how we're going to count people from a population standpoint in the slave in the states that possess slaves. And the reason it was important is because you're trying to figure out how many representatives are going to uh, be um, 
sent to the federal government once it's ceded. So the southern states, obviously seeking a higher population, therefore more representatives, wanted their slaves to be counted <clears throat> as full individuals, thereby increasing the population of the state. And the northern uh, uh, framers were like, no, that's crazy. You don't treat them as human beings in any other capacity. You're not going to count them as human beings here. So the compromise that they made was that uh, they would be counted, slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. And that would go toward the overall representation in Congress. So, so well, why is that important? Well, it shows you when you're talking about the concept of structural racism and institutional racism, then you see that it really is embedded even in the very, very beginning origins of our country. And it's not really until after the Civil War that you start to see some acknowledgement by the federal government that, okay, now we've got to figure out a way to make our newly freed slaves whole. Uh, and that was with the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. But even then, you saw the Supreme Court work against some of the goals of those amendments. And then you can chart it all the way up to Brown v. Board of Education, and now all the way up to some of the voting cases that we've seen in the last 10 years from this particular Supreme Court. So all of these things are, are related. And I think for my students, it's really important that they understand that history as a part of being able to give them more context for why these struggles have been so hard uh, for some sets of our people to overcome. Well, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we are talking with Professor Don Corbett. <clears throat> uh, we are talking about the uh, Constitution and uh, leading up to our Constitutional Day Educational uh, Program uh, each year, uh, and we're talking about uh, the understanding of constitutional uh, protections and, of course, responsibilities. Uh, we're going to take a break. Right now, I want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, really educational uh, conversation, and uh, we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. And we're talking with Professor Don Corbin about the United States uh, Constitution, its, its, its meaning, uh, its understanding among uh, the people. And when we uh, took our break, uh, Professor Corbin was talking about uh, the slave orientation uh, that's contained in the, uh, uh, the Constitution or in the original Constitution and the uh, intersection of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and how that uh, changed uh, the uh, focus of the Constitution and it related to uh, those individuals who are now called African-Americans. Um, there was this uh, infamous decision, uh, Dred, Dred Scott versus Sanders. Uh, which uh, basically uh, stated that on behalf of the United States, that this country was uh, developed by white people for white people uh, and was to um, design to uh, protect and defend those interests. Does the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment alter that uh, that concept, that perception of what uh, what is the meaning of the Constitution to us here in this country today? Well, it certainly attempted to. The, the, the amendments taken together certainly attempted to do that. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Dred Scott, uh, he was a slave uh, held in captivity, and then his slave uh, owner died, and he was basically willed to another person. And during this time period, it's kind of a convoluted story, but, but Scott ends up in a free state, okay? And is, is uh, there for a while. I can't remember whether it's Illinois or Missouri or maybe both. But after a while, uh, he sues in federal court for his freedom. Uh, he sues the person who now, quote unquote, has ownership over him because he's resided in a free state for so long and his original slave owner is dead. Uh, and essentially, as Professor Joyner stated, the court said that, that it didn't have jurisdiction over the matter because Scott, as being a freed slave and a person of African descent, was not a citizen, not a true citizen of the United States. And therefore, he could not access the federal court system. And as a part of a justification for that particular uh, decision, uh, Justice Taney, who was a slave owner himself, uh, said that uh, Black people essentially had no rights that white people were bound to follow. So that decision was not overturned until the passage of the 14th Amendment, which I believe was in 1868, 1870. And the first clause of the 14th Amendment says that all individuals who were born in the United States are thereby citizens of the United States and can enjoy all the rights of citizens thereof. Now, to show you how some of this stuff runs full cycle, um, there is talk now, um, largely in Republican circles, about having a new constitutional convention. And it is 100% certain for me that one of the subject matter, or if that ever comes about, there will be people advocating for the uh, abolition of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment and say that merely being born in the United States does not make you a citizen of the United States anymore. So even though, as I said, each of the three amendments, and let me, if you don't mind, let me say real quickly what they stand for and that people don't know. 
So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery and involuntary servitude. The 14th Amendment, in addition to establishing citizenship in the states, also guarantees people due process of the law as well as equal protection of the law. And the 15th Amendment says that states may not prohibit your right to vote on the basis of race. And the reason each of these three amendments were game-changing, not just because of their attempts to envelop uh, newly freed slaves into the fabric of society, they, each of the amendments also gave Congress the right to pass laws that would further the aims of these uh, three amendments. So certainly the intent was there. Uh, Certainly the goals were there and the problem has been the execution of those goals and, and how in some cases the Supreme Court has seen the attempted execution of those goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're um, pointing out the 15th Amendment, right? Um, that you cannot be prohibited from voting based on race. Um, and we should note that 15th Amendment, uh, Black men, so women still That's were right. not afforded the, the right to vote. Uh, and, and this raises this, this other question about the imperfection of the document when we're thinking about voting rights. Um, can you speak to how the Constitution um, doesn't fully address the issues that we even see today when it comes to individuals being able to exercise what we say is a constitutional right to vote. Correct. Uh, Again, people are shocked to know, maybe shocked is a strong word, but, but absolutely surprised to know that the original text of the Constitution never affirmatively granted a right to vote to people, never. And it allowed states for the most part, to determine eligibility for voting and the like, which is still kind of the basic system that we have today. But initially, you had to be at least 21 years old. You had to be uh, a white man. And in some states, you had to be like a Protestant Baptist faith. It just depended on the state. And it's, it's only been over time that that's evolved. The 15th Amendment gave Black men the right to vote, but it wasn't until the 19th Amendment uh, that women were allowed to vote. And then it wasn't until the 27th Amendment that people over the age of 18 were allowed to vote. And then even because even with the advent of the 15th Amendment, as you know, states worked their way around it by doing literacy tests and poll taxes and creating these really uh, somewhat arbitrary lines that made it very, very difficult for people of color to vote in certain states. So we, we hear a lot about the concept of the free and fair election nowadays, but if you look at the history of our country, at best, if, if, the, if the goal of, an America, of a democracy is for every citizen to have a vote, we didn't really start to get close to that until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And that was only 50, 60 years ago. And even since then, now you're starting to see because of some of the Supreme Court's recent decisions, that states are now actively curtailing, I won't say the right to vote because people can still vote, but they're certainly making it much more difficult for them to vote. And you know, the question for that is why? And it's because some people are interested in winning elections more so than having the democracy run in the way that we, I believe it was intended to run. But I think we also need to just add in though, the uh, importance of the uh, state's constitution, that uh, each state has its own constitution, and which is a good thing 
on the one hand, uh, but it is, can certainly be a bad thing on the other end. Because, for instance, if you're talking about the right to vote, a state can deny to its citizens the right to vote. Uh, and the 15th Amendment comes in only if there is discrimination uh, in, uh, in, in voting that the state has granted to uh, its, uh, its, its citizens. So the state constitution, which we pay very little attention to, is a very important uh, document for us to uh, understand because more rights are available under the state constitution than is available in, under the uh, federal uh, constitution. And uh, North Carolina, for instance, uh, started out in 1868 with a strong statement in its constitution on the uh, right to vote, and uh, which was the beginning of uh, reconstruction uh, in this state and in other uh, Southern states uh, as well. And, 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 and I find that there is a lot of confusion among people about this distinction between the federal and the uh, state uh, constitution. And, uh, and I guess that just kind of grows from the absence of this civic ed education that we used to have, that we don't have uh, anymore. And of late, uh, that becomes a part of a critical race theory, uh, which is being outlawed uh, all over the place. So what is your experience with, with your students uh, about these two different documents and how, how there is an interplay between them? Yeah, all of that is 100% right. And, and again, I think when students think constitution, they've been trained to think federal constitution. And ideally, the way the system is supposed to work, the federal, the, the federal government is supposed to work jointly with each individual state government. The system's called federalism, basically. But a lot of students are unaware of the fact that there are also state constitutions that may grant you more in the way of rights, as you referenced, than, um, uh, than the federal constitution does. And, and sometimes they struggle putting those two concepts together, at least initially, just because of the lack of exposure of the rights that are available to them in the state constitution. And as you said, it can be a wonderful thing when I think about the, the way that the state constitution here has been interpreted to, to say that you have an inherent right to a public education in some ways, the way the court has interpreted it, which does not exist at the federal level. So that is an overwhelmingly positive thing. Uh, but then you also can't leave out the fact that you still have state legislatures who will draft laws, even contrary to their own state constitution, just see how long they can get away with it. And if those are not challenged in court, then, as you said, it can, can be very detrimental to basic rights like voting. Yeah, Don, so you mentioned the, the right to education and how that has been interpreted um, by our North Carolina state courts to be included in the North Carolina Constitution. And when we think about some of these basic rights that, you know, folks, you know, many of us think that folks should have, um, Irv mentioned the South African Constitution, which includes a constitutional right to education, a constitutional right to housing, a constitutional right to health care. What are your thoughts and um, what type of discussions do you have with your students uh, and other scholars about embedding these basic rights within our Constitution or, or the, the fact that they don't exist within our Constitution? Sure, sure. Well, so much of 
our constitution is based upon and 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 the and the rules and doctrines that emerge from it they're really it's really based upon how it's interpreted right and we have language called the due process clause which some justices have read in such a way to allow for an expansion of rights that individual that is not they're not necessarily mentioned by name in the constitution but the court has just said well these are rights that are so fundamental to your citizenship that we think they ought to exist. So this would be the right to marry who you want to, uh, the right to, in some cases, take contraception, the right to travel, et cetera. All of these things are not referenced specifically in the Constitution, but they're a part of these due process rights. Well, conversely, there's also a theory called originalism. Uh, which started to emerge as a as a mode of constitutional interpretation after uh, a lot of the civil rights gains of the 60s. And a lot of conservative folk well, thought, well, we have a lot of activist judges that need to be reined in. So what we really should be doing is looking at strictly the verbiage of the Constitution and then deciding based upon that verbiage what the framers of the Constitution wanted when they drafted it in the first place. Now, for me, this is problematic because you can't, there are so many things that we have access to in our society now that you just can't, you, you couldn't have conceived of it back then at the time that it was drafted. And again, we go back to this question of whose history matters in some ways, right? Because if you're going to go all the way back to what the constitution meant in 1868, or I'm sorry, in, in 17, when it was drafted, then that omits an awful lot of people because Black people won't count, women won't count, gay people won't count, because we just were not deemed to be full citizens at that time. So this is, it feels like a very long-winded way of saying that the rights are whatever the Supreme Court says they are, and that's going to depend largely upon who's sitting in the court and how they view the, how they think the Constitution ought to be interpreted. So for me, thinks that a right to education ought to be a fundamental right that states ought to provide to every single person that's in the state. Uh, your originalists would say, nope, doesn't exist in the constitution. Uh, don't think it was uh, intended by the framers. So that right does not exist. You know, you, you mentioned the uh, earlier, the, uh, uh, the call for a constitutional convention uh, to straighten out the federal constitution and to make it uh, real. Uh, and there is uh, obviously there are some good things that you can say about that, but then there's a whole lot of danger uh, in there. Can you kind of talk about, you know, uh, whether uh, this is a viable or desired option uh, that uh, that we should uh, pursue? And I see we're going to have to take our break right now, and we can come back and talk about. Uh, that uh, during the uh, next segment. Uh, okay. But uh, this is the Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking about uh, your Constitution uh, or the United States Constitution, depends on which side of the street uh, you're on. And uh, we're talking with Professor Don Corbett, who is our constitutional law expert, and, uh, my co host. And uh, we want to uh, continue uh, this conversation. And uh, hopefully uh, you will be educated about the uh, plus and minus of this, uh, this document. So hang on and we'll be right back.
Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the legal review. Thank you so very much for staying uh, with us uh, this evening. I'm always my uh, co-host, uh, Dean April Dawson. We are talking with Professor Don Corbett about uh, the Constitution. Uh, and uh, when we took our break, I'd raised the question about uh, the uh, wisdom of a uh, constitutional convention. So can you just kind of just spend a couple of minutes just talking about your view on the wisdom of the uh, convening of a uh, constitutional convention to straighten out the constitution. Sure, sure. So, uh, and it's not it's not a loud discussion as of yet, but there are elements more so in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party that want to kind of reconvene and hold a 21st century constitutional convention. Uh, at which point there would be certain things that would be revisited within it. Uh, now, before people freak out, uh, they should understand that whatever came about as a result of, or whatever changes that would come about as a result of this alleged convention would still take two thirds of the states to even have a convention. And anything that's amended would still need to be ratified by three quarters of the states. Okay? So, that that's a very, very high threshold. And again, I think this is one of the areas where the authors and framers of the Constitution had a ton of foresight because they knew that depending on who may be in power, if you make it too easy to amend, then it becomes just like any other law and may be subject to the whims of the party in charge. So it's a very high threshold to amend the Constitution. And it's a high threshold really to even hold the convention itself. But I do think that one of the things that you have to be concerned about, I think, stem from much of what we've seen from the Supreme Court for the last uh, uh, year, 18 months. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, that Roe v. Wade has been <clears throat> overturned. And as a result of it being overturned, uh, there is no more federal protection for uh, women who seek to terminate pregnancies. States now get to dictate uh, the mechanisms and timelines upon which that can happen, if it can happen at all. Um, I think you have probably seen, if you're paying close attention, how many elements political in our society want to get rid of the federal regulatory state that uh, is directly involved with the operations in many aspects of our country. Uh, things like Social Security, Medicare, 
birthright citizenship, as I mentioned earlier, I think those would all be areas that might be subject to discussion. And if the votes fell the wrong way, maybe even elimination in a new constitutional convention. So I think you have to be real careful about that. On the other side of the fence, I think you would see Democrats seek to uh, constitutionalize things that we've talked about, uh, a right to housing, a right to healthcare, a right to public education, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so obviously you have contrasting views of America, and I think uh, that would come across in the debate around this new convention. I don't know that it's going to happen. There's no, there's no process necessarily that the Constitution outlines that I'm aware of that allows for it. Doesn't mean it won't happen, uh, but if it does, it just depending on which side of the fence you're on, it could end up being, you know, either really, really adding a, a set of viewpoints that you're in favor of, or things that you may think are abominable, abominable, and may gut the Constitution entirely. And your point really underscores what you've already kind of touched upon, which is the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. And one of the things that I tell my students is that, you know, a Supreme Court decision isn't necessarily right. It is just the decision of at least five of the justices on the court. And with a lot of these issues, they are split decisions and, and they are oftentimes split decisions that will go either way, depending on where we are in history and, and that trend, I'm sure will continue. And um, so, you know, it's important that we have an understanding of our constitution and, and that we also understand the politics that controls the interpretation of our constitution, because who's on the bench, who's, you know, at the Supreme Court uh, is dependent upon who is elected as uh, president and also who is in the Senate, because as we saw when Barack Obama was president, even though there was a vacancy on the court, the Senate, a political body, was able to block his nomination um, from even being considered. So uh, the Constitution is a, um, you know, a written document, but it is you know, subject to the political winds, just as every other aspect of our society. Um, I want to go back to one of the things that you talked about in terms of what people know about the Constitution and don't know about the Constitution. And this whole discussion of um, our constitutional rights being violated when uh, platforms limit speech. And so we see this very often when it comes to social media. So we know that there have been a number of folks who have been uh, kicked off of Twitter and Facebook and some of our other social media platforms. And whenever that happens, we always hear people saying that's a violation of the First Amendment. And so let's just talk a little bit and kind of dispel this myth that the Constitution applies anytime uh, you're told that you can't engage in speech that is um, offensive to others. Sure. So, so the state action doctrine is like the, the simple definition is that the Constitution and the rights that it guarantees apply only to the government. So that means that when we're talking about the First Amendment and your right to free speech or your right to worship in the way you want to, it means that government can't infringe upon those rights unless it has like a really, really super good reason for doing so, okay? 
but the conduct that speaks to that the Constitution speaks to only applies to government entities. Private conduct does not have to comply with the Constitution. So you mentioned Twitter just a minute ago. Twitter is a private company. It's owned by a private individual and run by a private set of board of directors. So if they don't like what you tweet, they can take you out. And it's not a constitutional violation for them to do so. So to bring home maybe a little bit closer for us, at Central, uh, we are a part of the UNC uh, university system. And that university system is a byproduct of the government of North Carolina. So that would mean that North Carolina Central wouldn't necessarily be on the right side of the constitution if it expelled a student for you know, saying something publicly about the financial aid department or something. He would have the right to do that. Uh, but if that student was at Shaw University, which is an HBCU in Raleigh, then Shaw can suspend that student all day long and not violate the constitution because it's a private entity. So <clears throat> as a result, that protection of freedom of speech wouldn't apply to the central at Shaw in the same way that it would to the student at central. So, and I think that's true of all the parts of the constitution that deal with individual liberties and equality. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that I, I want you to kind of flesh out a little bit is um, you've, you mentioned the Voting Rights Act and how we have uh, federal statutes that help to provide rights where the Constitution fails to do so. Right. Um, so voting rights a perfect example, but also when we think about discrimination, right? So as you noted, we've got the state action doctrine. So if you've got the federal government or, or any type of state actor, so when we say state actor, of course, we mean the federal government, we mean um, state, local governments, they're all included. Uh, but we know that we have private businesses that engage in discrimination as well, and the Constitution doesn't cover that. However, we do have federal laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race and the basis of gender. Can you talk about the relationship between uh, federal laws that protect against discrimination, for example, and, and the Constitution, and as you do so, kind of talk about Congress's authority to pass these types of laws. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna give this a shot. So let's, <laughs> let's stay with the subject of voting, okay? Because I think obviously we have an election coming up in a couple of months and it's on the forefront of everyone's mind uh, because the question will be, will the Democrats be able to maintain control of the House and the Senate or will that flip over to the Republicans? So, so remember, like we've, if we think back to what we talked about about 20 minutes ago, we talked about how voting, even though it's the hallmark of American democracy, was not always open to all of its citizens. In fact, at the beginning of our country, it was only open to a handful of citizens. Gradually over time, we've expanded that. And one of the key uh, amendments to the Constitution with regard to doing so is the 15th Amendment, which precluded people from being denied the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, as I think I mentioned earlier, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, uh, but Pursuant to the 15th Amendment, it also gave Congress the right to pass any law that would further the goal of uh, keeping people from being able, from being denied the right to vote on the basis of race. And it was that power that was used to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And just to show you the, the impact of that, uh, within three years of the passage of the law, I think the registration 
the, the number of black folk who were registered in the state of Mississippi was like at 7%. And it moved, I wanna say to 64% in three years. Uh, so you had this massive influx of new voters into the system. And the key thing uh, about, and, and stop me if I'm going too long, okay, but the key thing about the Voting Rights Act is it had two really super important provisions with regard to providing more in the way of protection uh, for voters of color. Section two precluded any practice or procedure that was uh, executed in a racially discriminatory manner or excluded people on the basis of race. But then there was also what was called section five, which meant if you were a state or a county that had a history of engaging in racist activities with regard to people's ability to vote, then you had to engage in what was called preclearance, meaning that you had to basically get approval from either a panel of federal judges or the attorney general before you instituted any changes with regard to your voting procedures or processes because of the history of those particular states and counties. So that's an, that's an example of the constitution working in conjunction with Congress to expand the set of rights to individuals. And the good thing, at least what used to be the good thing about the Voting Rights Act is that section two and section five would catch you coming and going, right? So section two allowed you to litigate in the event that you felt like there were discriminatory practices, you could now sue to contest that under the Voting Rights Act. But Section 5 was designed to preclude you from passing those laws in the first place. So, so and then that's really more important because litigation is time consuming and expensive and not everybody can do it. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court in the last eight years or so has basically gutted the Voting Rights Act and uh, severely, it, it, there's really nothing left of Section 5 anymore because of a case in 2013 called Shelby County v. Holder. And then in 2021, there was a subsequent case called Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee, which ended up torching Section 2. So, so right now, both of those sections, which were such huge protectors of, of, for voters of color, now no longer have the same teeth in them. And as soon as, as an example, as soon as Section 5 came down because of the Shelby County case, the next day, legislative, state legislatures all over the South started trying to figure out how can we curtail uh, people from voting going forward. So to your point earlier, Congress can at any time pass a law uh, that allows or reinstates uh, some of the conditions of the Voting Rights Act uh, John Lewis, I can't remember the name of it, but it's named for John Lewis. That act has been circulating around uh, Congress for a while now, but they cannot get it past the filibuster and cannot find Republican support for it. So um, that's where we are. And when we're in those places, then it allows states like Georgia to pass laws that say you can't even give water to people standing in line to vote, which is kind of crazy. But Unfortunately, that's where we are. Yeah, that that was um, a, a perfect example, right, of of how the Constitution doesn't go far enough to protect. Um, Congress can step in, but whenever you're talking about legislation, it's going to be interpreted by the Constitution, or it's going to be interpreted by the Supreme Court. Um, so, and even though Congress can. Um, uh, 
amend the legislation and kind of overrule the Supreme Court in its interpretation of the statute, again, it takes political will. And if we don't have that, then um, we see the problem with having such an imperfect constitution. Which gives us uh, a valid reason to push people to go out and vote in the upcoming uh, election because who it is that ends up at the uh, U.S. Senate and in the uh, House of Representatives as well as in state legislators, uh, legislatures become very important to uh, our future uh, and uh, the future of, of our children and other family members. So uh, I just want to make that point. <laughs> And we have just a few minutes left and we wanna emphasize that North Carolina Central University has a Constitution Day program, which is scheduled for Friday, September 16th. If you would like to partake in that event, please go to the NCCU website for more information, but we encourage you to use Constitution Day as an opportunity to learn more about this very important document um, very important, but also imperfect, and to make sure that you are involved in our political process. So where we see the gaps in the Constitution, when it comes to protecting the rights of those that are often marginalized, we can make sure that um, we are a more inclusive and protective government. What questions do you have, Irv? Well, um, question about the... Um the importance of the who that ends up interpreting the Constitution and uh, how do they end up where they are with the philosophies that they have. Yeah, it's unfortunately, it has become a much more politicized process in the last, I would say, 40 to 50 years. As an example of what I'm talking about, we referenced the Roe v. Wade case a little earlier. That decision came down in 1973. And the next justice to be nominated to the court was a gentleman named John Paul Stevens in 1975. And during his three-day confirmation hearing, he got no questions about abortion at all. So uh, it goes to show you how different the climate was with regard to the court and some of these really hot button political issues that we see now. So once uh, the politicians turn that process into a more political process, it then will cause the court to look like any other political entity which could affect its standing in the public. And we already are at this really weird place of, of a lack of institutional trust in many, many ways. So I think to your point, it matters a whole lot who is in control of the House of Representatives. It matters a whole lot who is in control of the Senate. And it matters a whole lot who is in control of the presidency, because those people now are going to nominate judges that are going to be aligned with the way they see the world and the way they think the Constitution ought to be interpreted. And I won't go into all the nerd statistics that I've seen from the last 15 or 20 years, but increasingly what you're seeing is judges who were nominated by a democratic president are much more likely than used to be the case to go or vote in the way that you would think a democratic president would want you to vote. 
And conversely, those who are nominated by a Republican president are now much more likely to vote along the lines that look like the platform of that particular party. So I think that's led to the, like I said, more overt uh, politicization of the court and you know whether the court can survive that in terms of public trust, we'll have to see. All right, well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guests, our colleague and frequent guests, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches along with us at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.